G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God, near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. We're still in the series, Hey Up There, about how God constantly calls us to look up, to turn our eyes and our hearts to Him. And in this episode, Pastor Jeff is speaking about one of God's commandments from Matthew chapter 5, the topic of adultery. In case you have young listeners around, just a warning that there are some adult themes in today's message. Here's Pastor Jeff with the message now. Look, I don't know how I keep getting this topic because we're in this series called Look Up Here and the basis of the series is that Uh, We believe that God truly does love us and that wants the best life for us. Uh, And it's just like when I was holding my little uh, granddaughter, you know, there's going to be things that I tell her and I'm going to be aggressive in my teaching. And there are going to be some things she just doesn't get because of her age. But as she gets older, she'll understand more and more. And the things that I tell her, look, you should do this or you shouldn't do that, are not because I want to be her big bad grandfather, right? It's because I love her. And I don't want her to participate in things that would bring disintegration. And so I'll be teaching her along the way. So we, we started this series. Uh, we said we want to go through the Sermon on the Mount because this is, this is God speaking, Emmanuel, God with us. So he's speaking to us uh, in relationship to the kind of life that we are to live. And we're assuming that God, since he's the creator and designer of all life, would know. And so if you're a tire kicker and you're in the room, but you know what a tire kicker is, right? You go to, you're not ready to buy the car yet. You're just kicking the tires. And you're here and you're thinking, I don't know what this is all about. And I can understand where some of the things I would say, you think, you know, I don't know if I can take that. That's a bit radical. What I want you to know is that Jesus is radical. The whole thing about following Christ is countercultural. It should almost oppress you in some way. It'll free you ultimately. But in the beginning, it's like the heat that you feel when you walk out the door. It just hits you right in the face at first, but you'll get used to it. And it's a better way of life. Maybe not the heat, but Jesus' way is a better way of life. So I, I, I want to get into the text. It's, I'm gonna, we're going to do a little bit of pre- preliminary work here. I heard, a, heard somebody say that Moses came down from the mountain and said to the people of Israel, I got good news and bad news. And he said, the good news is I got him down to 10. 
The bad news is adultery stays. <laughs> now we're going to go to a text where Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And before we even get to that, we have to ask, why is why the commandment given? And of course, if you were here for the Way series, you'll know that this is God's intention to show us what is essential to maintain higher civilization. Uh, adultery threatens the building blocks of any successful society, which is what? The family. So anything that threatens the family is seen to be wrong in the scriptures because God wants to protect the family. And in doing so, protect society. And nothing gives a child a more stable environment than two parents who love each other and who are faithful to each other. Bottom line. Doesn't mean there's not grace and forgiveness when we fail. He said, this is the way God intended us to live. The bottom line is, no civilization that condones adultery survives. The second question, though, in the adultery phase is that, why is the prohibition... And I just want to give you a little warning here. And I don't know why I keep getting these sermons because, you know, we do it in order and this is the next one. And I'm always the one that has to talk about it. Why not Steve or why not Rory or Mike Bro? Why do I always get them? So I'm going to use the word sex a few times and I'm going to talk about some things. So if you've got a young kid in here, I'm just going to ask you to just use your parental guidance. I never judge anyone for that. So you've got to make your call there. But I do think it's better for them to hear it from the pastor, from somebody else. Just saying. <laughs> So why is the prohibition of sex outside marriage probably the most difficult of the Ten Commandments to observe? And the reason is, number one, sex drive is enormously powerful in everyone. I've had many young guys come to me and say, Jeff, why did God make me like this? Why is this such a powerful thing? And I'll get to that in a moment. Second, the human desire to love and be loved is so powerful. So if you're in a loveless marriage, and somebody else pays attention to you and gives you the thing that you want most, it's hard to maintain the integrity of in your present relationship. It's just the bottom line. We're wired to love and to be loved. But the problem is when Jesus starts talking about this on the Sermon on the Mount, he goes one step farther. And here's what he says. I'm in Matthew 5. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, you know, the rest of that, he says, if your arm offends you, cut it off. Your eye offends you, pluck it out. Then he says, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, I first look at that and think, wow, who can live like that? What man in this room, what man in this room has not looked too long at a woman that he's not married to? None. Zero. So is Jesus saying that you're going to go to hell if you look at a woman longer than you should? Is that, is that the point? And by the way, if we take this as literal as we want to, we'd be a church filled with eye patches. <laughs> you know, I could just stand at the back door. Somebody walks in, he's got a, eye, a patch over his eye. I say, look too long, huh? Yeah. <laughs> the whole church would be like that. Now, some of you say, you know what? It doesn't really matter to me what Jesus teaches because I think right and wrong in this matter should be left up to each individual. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. No, you don't. No, you don't believe that. You don't. You say you do, but you don't because as soon as somebody violates a moral code that you have, you'll expect them to adhere to your moral code. That's why I always use Berkeley as an example. They're the ones who teach so much about uh, moralities left up to each individual. It's situational ethics, and yet they're the first ones to protest when somebody does something in their minds is unjust. Doesn't work. You got to can't have it both ways. 
So the fact of the matter is for Christ followers who are living against the grain, we're looking up there and we're knowing that there's a countercultural way of living. That, that, that he, we're not as old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy as you think we are. It's just that we believe that the person who created sex would know best how it should be used. That's that simple. And there are things that God gives us that come with a design manual. And those things are wonderful. But if you violate the design manual, as wonderful as they are, they can also wreak havoc in your life if you abuse them. There are other things in life just like that. You've heard me use the example of the ocean. It's beautiful, man. But it can kill you, right? And it really doesn't matter how you feel, right? Your feelings have to line up with the design. So in other words, if you say, I think I should be able to go out deep into the ocean in the middle of storms and not die. Well, you can feel like that all you want. But if you do that, it's going to kill you. You can say, I don't feel I should have to change the oil in my car every 10,000 miles or 3,000. Shows you what I know about changing oil. (laughs) You, You can say, I don't feel that I should avoid shallow water with my boat. I don't feel that I should avoid fatty foods to prevent a heart attack. You can feel all those things. It's not going to make a difference. Your feelings concerning how you think you should be able to use your body, really, it's immaterial. The question is, do your feelings match up with design? Because design always wins in the end. Now, let me hammer this just a second. Uh, My buddy, Steve Bahar, has a great illustration. He says, you know, I don't get you Americans in this whole thing with casinos. Because you drive up to a casino, not that we ever have, but you have. And when you drive up to the casino at Pachanga or Morongo, it's beautiful. There are water fountains. Man, it is flash. There's a... This is a wealthy place we're looking at here. Fantastic architecture, water fountains, an allure of color and design. What should that tell you? You're going to lose. (laughs) That you might have a good hour or maybe a half a day, but ultimately the house always wins. Now, you show me a casino that has a sign outside that says, if you win lots of money, would you please make a small donation so we can keep this place open? And I'm there. (laughs) You with me? No matter how you feel, there's objective truth and there's subjective the way that you feel. So right from the get-go in this passage, Jesus is saying, you heard it said, you should not commit adultery. And he's saying, well, that's right. You shouldn't because you weren't designed that way. And no matter how you feel, God sent me this man. I know it's a gift. No, it's not. No, it's not a gift from God. Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery. Stay faithful in your marriage. And as I said before, the reason you're not committed to the biblical concept of sex is because you're not really committed to God. You're not monogamous with God. You dabble in a bit of everything. You see God as a good luck charm, not the exclusive Lord of your life. You see Jesus as the one who helps you get your parking place, not the Lord of your life. So you're not exclusive to your spouse because you're not exclusive to your God. Now, if we could just leave it there, I'd be a lot more comfortable. Jesus is simply saying that grace does not nullify God's design and you were not quit, equipped or built to commit adultery. But then he goes, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, does that really mean what it says? Does it really mean that if I look at some, and what does lustfully mean? All right, you're gonna have to follow me here. This is, I told you when we did the sermon on that, this is not easy material. This is double the time I usually have to prepare. So doggone it, you're gonna listen. Listen, you got to follow me here. The Bible teaches 
that sex is not a consumer good, but a covenant good. A consumer good, a person says, you know, sex is something that I, I want. It's something I have to have. It's about you. You say to yourself, you know, I need to feel loved and cherished and confident about my body, so I'm going to go out and find somebody that can meet that need. That's when you start to see sex as a consumer good, something that you have a right to and need to and want to for the sake of some kind of self-aggrandizement. But the Bible says it's not a consumer good, that it's something that is a covenant good. It becomes like a sacrament. Okay, I think this is the best way I can explain this. We talk about baptism. When somebody's baptized, we say that this is an external sign of something that's happening internally. So internally, they are dying to their old way of life and being resurrected to a new way of life. So we don't know that's going on in their life, but when they're baptized, it shows us that they're serious, that there's something happening in their life. So this is called a sacrament of baptism. Now, sex, the Bible teaches is an outward expression of an inward reality. The outward expression is intimacy. The inward reality is full, whole body, covenant, and commitment for the rest of your life. And then we talked about how the Bible says God would not penetrate you with his spirit until you are committed in a covenant with him. Therefore, don't you penetrate somebody else or allow somebody else to penetrate you until there is full, complete, economic, physical, psychological, everything kind of covenant with that person. It's not a consumer good. It is a covenant good. Now, if you ask two-thirds of the people around Los Angeles if you should live together before they're married, they'll say, yeah, you should, because if you live together before you're married, then you'll be better prepared for marriage because you'll know whether or not you're compatible. The great man lied to get sex before he's supposed to have it. (laughs) Now we have clinical psychologists in the New York Times pointing out that's impossible. And here's why. The standards for a live-in partner are lower than they are for a spouse. One woman said, I felt I was on a never-ending audition year after year to be his wife. See, if you're living together, it's always a consumer relationship because you're always asking each other, can we do better than this? Compatibility is nothing more than a nice way of saying, is this person good enough or do I need an upgrade? You with me? But we don't have to talk about what the Bible says now. The New York Times tells us right here. Now we know. Now we know. What is sex in a consumer type of relationship where you're testing the waters and checking out for compatibility? What is sex? It's marketing. It's marketing, trying to sell yourself. Yes, I'm worthy to be married. It's a consumer good. And the New York Times, at least the writers in the New York Times say, there is no way that sex outside of marriage prepares you for sex inside marriage. Sex outside of marriage is consumerism. It's about what you want and you want only. And sex inside marriage is a covenant expression. What? In the New York Times? And the Bible would say it's an external expression of an internal reality that we belong to each other for life. Consumer sex is self-driven. Covenant sex is selfless. And let me tell you, it's rapturous. There's something different that happens when two people are committed to each other over the long haul, man. Intimacy is totally different. And the only people who don't know that are the people who've never been married for long-term covenants. And you're settling for a type of intimacy that is so shallow. But Jesus goes beyond that. Again, if we stopped right there, it's all good. But he goes beyond and he says, but I tell you that anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Now, let's go back to something we said before. There is no way that you're ever going to convince me that the Bible has a negative view of sex. Even though you guys are Los Angeles and exposed to all kinds of stuff in Hollywood and televisions and movies, I could read you, if you really had the time, I could read you passages from the Bible that would make you blush. I could. Genesis 2, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know they're naked when this is happening. <laughs> Proverbs says you should be ravaged with the breasts of your wife. Jeff, you say, well, you, you, you don't take the Bible literally, do you, Jeff? Well, sometimes it's an advantage to take the Bible literally. <laughs> and the Song of Solomon has explicit material describing both the husband and the wife in a state of arousal. It's in the Bible. So the Bible is filled with exuberant, glorious, bare-faced language of sexual love and arousal. There's no way you're ever going to get me to believe that the Bible has a negative view. So what does it mean? What does it mean? You mean God creates me this way, and, I, and if I look at a woman lustfully, then I go to hell? Is that what he's saying? No. No. Lustfully. Lust is a word that means idolatry and greed. Now, do I have you? Of course I do. We're talking about sex. I got you. You're not going anywhere. I don't even need an introduction. I just say the word and you're in. Here's the issue. Is it wrong to have a lot of money? Absolutely not. Abraham did. Moses did. Joseph of Arimathea. Plenty of people in the Bible had a lot of money. That's not the problem. Greed is the problem. What is greed? Selfishness. It's when you want more and more of it for yourself, to gather more and more stuff, to build bigger and bigger barns, to have everything you want, to stockpile and to collect and hoard. And your money's all about you. What next pleasurable satisfaction you're going to be able to achieve with the amount of resource that you have. And the more you make, the more stuff you want. And as soon as you make more money, your mind automatically goes to, now what can I buy? That's called greed and it's never enough. It's all about me, 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 right? <laughs> greed is also about addiction though. Greed is also that you never have enough and you always need more. And like all addictions, you'll do whatever you have to have or do to get more because that's the only way you can be satisfied. But no matter how much you get, it never ultimately satisfies. That's called an addiction. It just creates deeper and deeper desire. And it doesn't help that you think your identity is tied to your money. So you think if you make a lot of it, you're automatically smart. And because you have a lot of money, people should listen to you about everything. That's why... That's my biggest complaint about Hollywood. You think just because you're good at one thing, standing up and making us believe in the fantasy world, that we should listen to you on political views and economic views and everything else. So people who are addicted to money work harder and harder to get more and more because it's their God. It's the thing they trust, the thing they serve, the thing they obey. But money and having money is not wrong. It's your attitude toward it and what you do with it. But also... If you're greedy, there's this thing about fantasizing. Here's a great test for greed. You say, well, am I a greedy person? Here's a good test. Are you always thinking about what you're going to do when your ship comes in? Are you always thinking about, man, when I make enough money, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to buy this boat, and I'm going to retire down here, and I'm going to travel first class, and I'm going to buy this great expensive. If, if that's you, if that's the way you think that the more God, first of all, I have a hard time believing God's going to send more your way if you're just going to spend it on yourself. But if that's the way you think, chances are you're greedy. No matter how much you have, $10, $10, 10000 $10 million. Because you're always looking for money to give you that kind of deep affirmation and relationship and security that only God can give you. So the bottom line is, nothing wrong with having a lot of money. It's when you're selfish 
and you're addicted to it. Your identity comes from it. You fantasize what you're going to have when you have more. Now, here's what Jesus is saying by using this word, look at a woman lustfully. He's saying that it's very possible to have the same idolatrous attitude toward sex that some have toward money. In other words, it is possible to use sex in a way that is selfish. It's all about you and your pleasurable satisfaction, what you want, when you want, and how you want. It's addicting because it's never enough. No matter how much you get, you want more, and you're constantly seeking fulfillment. And third, you're fantasizing. Somehow, you're looking to sex to give you what only God can give you. Now, let me repeat that. (laughs) Jesus says it's very possible to have the same idolatrous attitude that some people have toward money, toward sex. It's all about you. It's selfish. It's all about your self-aggrandizement, your pleasurable satisfaction. It's addicting. It's never enough. And you have to have it on your terms. And you're fantasizing what you're going to do with your next experience or exploit. Now, let me give you a few ways a person violates this. This is the most harsh thing I'll say. Pornography and masturbation. In this scenario, sex is nothing more than a consumer good. It's the ultimate violation using someone for your purposes and your purposes only. There's no covenant here, and there's no commitment, just self-serving, self-everything. It's so focused on you that you don't even need the other person in the room. It's consumer good par excellence. In the way you want it, when you want it, how you want it, it's ultimately about you. It's frictionless. In short, it's everything the Bible says it's not supposed to be. Is it addicting? Yes. Is it selfish and greedy? No doubt. Is it fantasizing? Absolutely. And the larger point is any sex outside of marriage is using sex selfishly rather than using sex unselfishly. You're using it as a consumer good rather than a covenant expression. Now, let's keep going. Another book's come out just recently. It's uh, not too recently, but it's a a book written by uh, Mark uh, Regnerus and Jeremy Euchre. They are two sociologists. This is empirical evidence. You know what I mean when I say empirical? This is not based on how I feel. This is objective evidence. And in the book, they give us a snapshot of premarital sex in America. Young people, you listening? A snapshot of premarital sex in America. And the vast majority of Americans, when they were asked, why are you having sex outside of marriage? They answered this way. In order to keep the relationship going. I felt that if I didn't cooperate, he or she would move on from here. At a certain point, you kind of just have to or the other person will leave. You hear what they're saying? Well, I kind of felt like, you know, we'd been dating. I had to to produce. Or otherwise, he or she would move on. Now, is that a consumer approach? Adjust to me, or I'm out of here? (laughs) Is that selfish? Young girls who are in the room, let me tell you something that maybe your father's already told you, or that he wants to and he doesn't know how, or maybe your father's absent from your life. Can I take on the role of father for a moment? If you're dating somebody and they're pressuring you into sex, can I just tell you, he doesn't love you. And it's possible that sex has become his God. Ours has become a culture where sex is a God, and if you're not having it, you're not living. Your importance, significance, and hope are all placed in love, sex, and physical exploits. So now young girls are growing up believing that they don't matter until they have sex. That's a lie that will destroy you. Christ's followers are devoted followers, and they know that the only thing or person that you can't live without, the only thing that you can't do without, that your happiness is truly dependent on, is God himself. Amen. Anything else is idol worship. Now, stay with me here. You thought, boy, I'm glad he's talking to them. He's not. well, now it's your turn. <laughs> because do you know that it is possible to participate in idolatry or idol worship even within the marriage? 
I'm a guy, if you haven't noticed. I love my wife, and I believe my wife loves me. But if you were to talk to my wife, here's some things I believe she would say. Yes, I love Jeff. He's incredibly handsome. He's so good to me most of the time. He has given me many joyous moments, but he's also been a rather large pain in the backside on many occasions. Sometimes I would just like to smack him. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. So what Jesus is saying is you were built to know God, and if you lose Him, you lose your ability to be ultimately satisfied. So Jesus is saying if you use sex in an illegitimate fashion because you think it's the ultimate quencher or the ultimate fulfillment of longing, then you're like a man dying for thirst on a raft in the ocean. Water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.